You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Joss Lake. A trans writer and educator based in New York, Joss teaches critical and creative writing throughout the city and runs a literary sauna series called Transit Rest. His work has been supported by the Queen's Council of the Arts, Women in Performance Studies Collective, the Watermill Center, and Columbia University. In summer 2021, Soft Skull Press published Joss's debut novel, Future Feeling, a story about an embittered dog walker who accidentally puts a curse on a young trans man and has to embark on an adventure with his social media frenemy in order to save him. That novel is the subject of our conversation today. Joss Lake, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start by asking you to tell me a little bit about the title of this novel, Future Feeling. What are you trying to gesture at or evoke with that name? So I think a lot of the sort of behind the scenes work that went into the novel was trying to imagine a sort of futurity that was neither sort of too dystopian and grim, nor too sort of naively positive. And so the title is sort of like, it makes a note toward this trajectory of the book that we're we're thinking through, you know, the near future, the far future, but really not just sort of the future in terms of like, what will our social systems look like? But like, how do people have feelings and how do they relate to their feelings? Yeah. Um, and with so much talk about like AI and the future and technology, I think it can be relieving in a strange sense to, to realize like, regardless of these technologies, humans are still going to be in our like human state and still have feelings and still have messy feelings and there's not really a way to kind of mechanize that and so yeah yeah, that's sort of where the title is coming from i like that it's reflected in the way the first chapter begins which i should say is technically not the very beginning of the novel there's a page before that it starts, in order to explain how I was called to the Rizport after the wedding of Aiden Chase and Rachel Remedios, we have to start back in my less enlightened days on the other more miserable coast. So it sets the book up as something that's like looking back, even as the characters that it's about are searching for that kind of future. Could you talk about that choice to play on that sense of time? Yeah, I think it was helpful again, to sort of denote from the beginning that the narrator Penfield is not going to stay in the same kind of angsty state throughout his whole trajectory. Because I I mean, it was very fun to like work with his angst in a certain way. But I also didn't want it to feel suffocating, like, oh, my gosh, this whole book, we're going to be like in this person's perspective and they're going to be kind of like whining about things. So I did want to sort of indicate from the beginning, like do a sort of flash forward to like a point in time where there's going to be sort of a shift with him just so that then it's sort of a mystery of like, how did he get there? But it was also, again, to signal to the reader that we're not going to stay in the same like affective state throughout the whole book. Yeah, I like that part of the line, my less enlightened days. I was really struck by the fact that the main players in this book, so there's there's three sort of main characters that it revolves around. There's Penfield Henderson, there's Aiden Chase, and Blythe. They're all strangers who are thrown together by circumstance. They're not people who would ever really meet or become friends, at the very least, in the normal course of their lives. And I was curious, 
what did you want to explore by forcing these particular people together? So I think because the internet is sort of a key kind of setting, or at least a setting that sort of starts Penfield out on this journey, I did want to sort of explore like, how can a relationship that started from all these misconceptions based on the internet, what happens when you take it off the internet? And so that was sort of the joy of exploring Penn and Aiden, Penn having all these sort of, again, misconceptions about Aiden and then being forced to like confront him IRL and be able to gauge like how wrong he was. Mm. And then with Blythe, I wanted to also explore someone who, because Blythe is being sort of sent into his shadowlands, a sort of place of like fragmentation and despair. And for him, it's not just about like reckoning with his transness. It's also reckoning with being adopted by white parents and sort of all of these different kind of fissures and and also just ways that I wanted to sort of create these various like kind of layers of tension between the characters so that again it, it wasn't this totally like seamless row down where these three trans guys like eventually you know come together and like everything's great and they help each other like I did want to sort of make room for the ways in which their experiences are not all shared by one another, where there are sort of these gaps, these gaps and these sort of misunderstandings. Um, and again, this this kind of like real texture of what it's like when, yeah, when three people come together from, from very different places and attempt to start building some kind of familial or friendship structure. Yeah, and I'm curious how you see their relationship at the, at the end of this all, right? Without giving away plot points, I'm just curious <laughs> um, mm-hmm. how you see that having evolved. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, I'm, I'm trying to gauge like what I would say without demarking what happens then. But I do think that there is a sense of of Penn's evolution, him being at a place where he can actually like look at others and like have a better more empathic and more real understanding of like what they're experiencing it's not mm-hmm. all kind of coded in his own misery and i mean i do think there is a, a sort of movement where blythe is is kind of heading out on his own experience so there's sort of like a separation where he is sort of like starting to do his own work and so it's like he sort of moves beyond the Shadowlands and is is sort of going sort of deeper into his own kind of like familial and, and cultural journey. So he kind of, yeah, like he sort of sets off on his, his own path after making it through the Shadowlands. Hmm. For me, one of the things that I, I found really compelling about the book is the way that it engages with the idea of a queer community. I think, you know, thinking about all the ways that it, it's, dealing with like sort of the internet and social media, social media can be a really wonderful way to connect with other queer people, but those spaces can also feel really isolating, especially if the ways that like you have experienced your own queerness don't match that kind of, I think you said something like naive positivity, right? That sort of curated naive positivity that is really ubiquitous online. I was curious about the Riz in that context. Um, And the Riz for listeners is the sort of technological formalized version of like a queer mutual aid society. (laughs) And I was curious about it as a sort of network that forces people together and enforces a kind of empathy between queer people who are struggling to see each other clearly. 
Could you tell me more about how you envisioned the Riz and your understanding of what it means to have a queer community online? Mm-hmm. I feel like the Riz or like the rise coming from oh, like, the, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> like the rhizome. Uh, um, it came out of like my growing, I mean, it came out of a lot of things, but it was partially based on like my ever growing fascination with like mushrooms and like mm-hmm. mycelial networks. And the more people are doing research, the more they're realizing that like the internet is sort of, there are all these overlaps between how the internet functions and how like fungi kind of create these underground networks and there are ways in which these mycelial networks can support trees and like if if one tree is like having a hard time these networks can like send like more nutrients toward that tree and so they're just these kind of really beautiful evolving understandings of how fungi are in the running for you know organism that might help us like save the world but I wanted to sort of counterbalance the internet and social media communities with a sort of underground network that was actually doing like real measurable work in providing things to the queer community. So like the rise like gives people health insurance and has this whole system where like if someone's in distress, you can like summon them and then these like operatrixes will come and either kind of guide you or help you guide yourself and they kind of operate a little bit mysteriously and it also just came out of like this feeling like although there can be so many like frustrations and divisions within like various queer communities there is this sense of people kind of making things happen on a sort of non-institutionalized manner like crowdsourcing people's surgery or housing or just these very sort of visceral communal things that do happen again like not in a super institutionalized way so i wanted to kind of create the system that mirrored that and yeah i mean in terms of the queer community i think I was trying to sort of move between these two poles. One is like making space for like the messiness of queer community and the way that people don't, you know, it can't just be assumed that because you're queer, that means that you understand someone else's experience who's also queer. And with the sort of the rise and like the rise port that comes in later, I wanted to like give myself the room to like imagine like, okay, what if there were <laughs> immeasurable resources and the rise like, could really help people and there could be like this whole area for like queer and trans elders and mm. there are like all these different arms of the rise like we don't even fully see in the book, um, but that are just like working to support the queer community. And so, yeah, I felt like, again, what was a really helpful energy was sort of this like, aspirational one. In earlier iterations of the book, the rise was like a little more nefarious because there Mm. is this whole also layer of like surveillance where they like, (laughs) they like have all these like technologies and and ways of figuring out Very extensive files on everyone in the network. Yes, extremely. And so at first it was going to be a little more potentially nefarious. And then I just had this yeah, this impulse to like not make it into a complete dystopia where like even the rise <laughs> is like kind of working toward these sort of unseemly ends. So yeah, it all kind of evolved. But I, I do think that this question of like, what could the future look like if, you know, there was more equitable distribution of resources was like a really generative one in terms of like creating the rise. 
Sort of one thing I wanted to pick up on, because I've seen it come up a lot in your other interviews, and certainly it resonates with my understanding of the book. You mentioned the sort of messiness of a queer community, and you've talked before about the sort of messiness of the individual characters, right? Like, these are people who make mistakes, they hurt each other, they just do stupid things <laughs> quite a lot. But at the same time, I think there's a a real sense of perseverance, Pen accidentally hexes, you know, a total stranger and then gets sort of called upon to be part of the solution in that way, too. Right. Like, I just thought that was a really profound way of of looking at things. It's not transactional. Their relationship is not a transactional one. And it's not one where you make a mistake and then you're like cast out forever. So I was really interested in the fact that Penn, who is this really messy person, who is like desperately in need of empathy and understanding and who is also kind of incapable of giving it to other people, what it meant to sort of force him to reckon with the consequences of his actions, but to do that in community. Why was it important for you that he he go on this journey and that he do it with other people? A lot of the ways that I grappled with Penn kind of stem from this class that I took that I kind of hated in grad school <laughs> called The Hysterical Male. And it was like we read all of these books where there was, I mean, always like a cis white male character. And you were like very much like deep inside their perspective or his perspective. And in a lot of the books, there was no like redemption. You're just kind of like swirling around in, in this sort of consciousness. Mm. Like Portnoy's Complaint was one, Jerrigan, just yeah, all these books where you're kind of like trapped inside this cis white man's consciousness. And I was sort of interested in starting from that point yeah. because it it really like bothered me, but it also kind of like enthralled me in terms of thinking about like a trans male consciousness. But then not just swirling around and around like moving from that state of consciousness where you're like so inside someone's head to seeing them have to relate to other people and also seeing them like have to check in with the way that like all of these assumptions that they're making about other people when they're like so mired in their mm. own like myopic perspective how just untrue <laughs> those are yeah. so i really again like wanted to start sort of use this template of like being inside someone's kind of suffocating perspective and sort of self-involved. It's like, even though Penn like doesn't feel great about himself, he's like very self-involved in like not feeling Those great things are connected. Himself. Yeah, exactly. And so again, like kind of trying to make some like interventions into that structure and even just like think about on a craft level, like what tools can I use to like move someone out of that state of being towards something that feels real, believable? What do you want your character to move toward? And like, if you're starting out in a kind of dystopia, is there like tension in having characters like move toward something that's not dystopia so which is like yeah. a question that i haven't really seen a lot of people asking in the literary world but that i i see people asking a lot in the general <laughs> general world of like how do we get what? out of this dystopia yeah exactly and so i i do think that fiction yeah like i i think it's a very worthwhile question to ask in fiction and with pen it was just like on a very individual level like okay where can he go from here mm. 
And I think him kind of going further into relationships and becoming like a part of the rise um, as well. And not just like the person who, you know, is kind of like in trouble. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Joss Lake, whose debut novel, Future Feeling, came out in 2021. Hearing you talk about that, it just made me think that so many of the the books that I really gravitate to, they do something that I, I think is pretty subversive because they manage to show you just how bad we are at like predicting other people, right, or understanding their intentions. And whether we're sort of projecting onto them something positive or something negative, it's always there. I, I was thinking a lot of an 80-year-old Turkish novel of uh, Madonna in a Fur Coat by Sabah Hattin Ali, which mm. is this... Have you read it? <laughs> No, but I'm going to make a note of it. It is a wonderful novel from the 1940s by a, as as far as we know, cis heterosexual Turkish man that feels like it could have been written in the present day by mm-hmm. just about anybody else. And it really, I mean, for being from the 1940s and from Turkey in that time period especially, it, it really plays with gender expectations in the way that the sort of characters react to each other and in the sort of roles that the the characters in it have. But one of the things that I like about it is that you have this main character who is so interested in other people. He's not like Penn. He's not self-involved in that same way, but still so fundamentally like he's bad at seeing himself the way that they see him. He's And because of that, he is then also bad at seeing them as they see themselves. I just, I think there's something really subversive about that because we spend so much time in novels, like so many of them are about getting deeply into one character's head, right? Like being able to see the inside in a way that we can't normally. And so for a novel to then say, you can't ever actually be in somebody else's head. I think there's something, yeah, I just, I think there's something really interesting about that. Yeah, for me, there's like always a sort of visceral relief when you kind of realize that all your sort of stories about Mm -hmm. people are like fictions and you kind of have to like the only way to kind of get the story is to actually listen to the the narrative that the person is willing to share, like whether or not that is accurate is also another question. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there can be this real the sort of visceral relief in realizing that like you're quite wrong about how you envision other people's like lives to be, especially when, if you're someone who's like, like has a propensity for like idealizing other people. And then you kind of realize like, Oh, that that's not accurate. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me want to ask you about a scene early ish on. So after Penn has cast this curse and after an operatrix has chastised him and tasked him with hooking up with Aiden and going to rescue the two of them going to sort of rescue Blythe from the Shadowlands, this operatrix drops boxes and boxes of artifacts from Blythe's life. And before they are sort of licensed to go help him, Penn and Aiden have to put together a narrative. What was it called? It's it's called a narrative something. Yeah, like the narrative report. Yeah, narrative report. That's what it is. Yeah, they have to put together this narrative report almost as a way to like prove that they are capable of understanding his, his life and his perspective. And of course they can't. And also, of course, they have like two drastically different approaches to it. But I thought it was so interesting because so much of Penn's experience with others before that point is about projecting his own narratives on them. And then he's sort of given this task of like, how can you see this person trying to come up with a narrative about this person that feels true enough for him to be allowed to like go help him? And so I was, I was curious really what like 
how you saw the scene and what you were trying to convey through it. Yeah, I think in one sense, it's like a way to break up the narrative so that it's it's like a step outside of Penn's mind, even though it's his sort of work. And it's a way, I mean, it's kind of just like a, a technical way to give us Blythe's backstory without yeah. getting out of the, I mean, we're like leaving the first person perspective, but we're not like going into like a leaving it, but sort of within, yeah. we're still like in the universe of Penn instead of like fully switching perspectives and going from like a first person to like a close third or like putting fly sections in the first person, which I also didn't like, I thought about perspective a lot and like, do I want to go into Aiden's perspective, like first person yeah. or Bly's? And I, I felt strongly that the book needs to be about Penn grappling with other people's experiences, but that mm. I wasn't necessarily the person to like tell Bly's story or even tell Aiden's story. And so, yeah, it's a way to kind of start moving us toward pieces of Blythe, but having Penn be tasked with trying to understand this other person's life. And which also just gives him like kind of a break from his own obsessing yeah. like over himself. <laughs> well, I think this is a good time to have you read a little excerpt um, before you okay. do. Can you can you set it up for us? Tell us what we're going to hear. Sure. So this is the first part of the second section. So Penn and Aiden have gone off on the task that they were given by the rise and they've retrieved um, Blythe and they're bringing him back to Penn's apartment. So this is that scene. Great. Um, and just for context, Penn has two roommates. One is called the witch and one is called the stoner hacker. The kitchen looked new to me after a few days away with its dried herbs and animal bones hanging down from the ceiling, and the three stools lined up below the counter. The witch floated in, wearing layers and layers of shawls and her melusine skirt with a tailed woman applique. Welcome, welcome, she said, warmer than I'd ever seen her, twirling around in a circle. Please use this dwelling as you wish, only do not disturb my arrangements. You may cross through to the backyard during my morning chants from 9 to 10 when I am temping from 1 to 5 in the evening or during the dissension occurring in the evening from 8 to 9 in the spring. The level of awkwardness was not yet intolerable. I pulled Aiden and Blythe into my room to explain. Okay, I know she's weird, but when I interviewed people to see if they wanted to share this tiny-ass apartment with me, only a few responded. It was hard to speak in my room with the door closed because the SH's takeout and weed residue formed a thick cloud. An artist couple, a neuroscience PhD with a snake, a perfect quiet ceramicist who bailed on me, a cis white straight guy who used the word hella, and a baby boomer divorcee. I think my compatibility test scared away most folks. I asked them about condiment usage and how likely they would be to squirt some of my ketchup onto a bun if they'd run out. The crazy thing is, I didn't even care about condiment usage. It was just because of a story I heard about someone threatening to put laxatives in his ketchup if his roommates kept eating it. Okay, you really don't care. Blythe had wandered over to my mood board and Aiden was scrolling on his phone. I knew my voice was taking on a high, shaky tone. But do you understand how I ended up living with the witch and the SH? 
I couldn't refrain from asking, hey, we're not here to evaluate your life choices. I have to pee, Aiden said. And before I could warn him about the witch's cleaning aversion, he was off down the hall. Blythe and I scanned the photos of hamburgers, bohemian living rooms, and geology labs until Aiden came back. I'm not comfortable with this, he said quietly, referring to the bathroom's green sludge jars, old pubes, dust, poorly tied bundles of burnt sage, the SH's cologne, and a toft bow bath mat that was always left sopping and molding. I sighed. The witch believes cleaning is a form of violence. The door opened. The witch poked her head into my room. Yes, a futile act that humans practice to ensure some sense of power over the elements. Cleaning is an extreme delusion. You sweep the floor and then you throw the dust ball and bread bag plastic cinch into the trash and the trash goes to the landfill. As we all know, the landfill will never be cleaned unless scientists release plastic metabolizing microbes, which will surely get out of the landfill and come back to eat our flesh. More often than not, cleaning makes things dirtier. Bleach, antibacterial soap, idiots who throw their compost into plastic bags. By trying to eliminate 99% of germs, we're adding in toxicity. She finished the diatribe. Copious coffins of cuttlefish. Now my new trans companions were really going to know how weird things got around here. I love that you picked that section because I think it really, um, <laughs> it really captures the essence of, of Penn as somebody who like, <laughs> nobody has asked him, but he instantly like is in defensive justifying mode, like needs to be understood even when it's clear that they just don't care. <laughs> um, but also the sort of characters, and I mean that in all senses of the word, that are <laughs> around him. Um, I was thinking too, as you were reading it, about the way that this is a book, I think the sort of futurity of it mostly feels technological, but it's also a book that accepts people as they are and as they understand themselves. So the witch is a witch. Even if there's not a lot of stuff that really qualifies fully as magic versus technology in the rest of the world, every time you're confronted with her magic, it is magic, right? So I, yeah, I really like that section and I, I think it was a, a good choice. Thank you. So this is not really about that section so much, but mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about a line from one of your blurbs um, from Paul Beattie that I, I thought was really interesting. He writes... Lake weaves a tantric tale that measures the timelessness of trans identities, not in well-intentioned DSM diagnoses, civil rights movements, or social media pedantries, but by cherishing the fissures in the rock wall of intersectionality. For his future feeling proves it's in these misalignments, misunderstandings, and inappropriate joking where we have the space to be ourselves. I think that's really an interesting and unusual way to think about identity. And I think you were talking at the, at the very beginning about your interest in these misunderstandings between these characters as sort of generative opportunities. So I, w I was curious to hear you reflect on what he says about your novel and how you interpret what he's saying about identity here and how it resonates with what you were trying to explore. Yeah, I think for me, it was also like in order to kind of do the thing of giving characters like space to be messy and to kind of move beyond these, you know, these platitudes or these sort of other ways that marginalized people gain recognition. I had to kind of bring in humor, which is not something I'd really worked with in writing before. 
But this way, like having so much sort of tension between characters and and sort of misalignments and misunderstandings and raising the volume on that so that there's kind of a release in the humor of it. So it's not just like this really stiff novel where like everyone's kind of bumping into each other. Yeah, I kind of needed to add in humor to make these, yeah, these sort of like fissures come alive. And I mean, Paul, yeah, he was someone like I studied with in grad school, but I didn't know, I really didn't know his work that well until I read The Sellout, which came out after I'd worked with him. And I was just like, oh my God, like it was so biting Hmm. and sort of hilarious, but in a really dark way. And it felt like, yeah, like seeing that on the page, it kind of opened up this question of permissiveness. Like there's so much like anti-trans like rhetoric and violence. Mm -hmm. It can sometimes feel like, okay, we can't talk about like the messiness of transness or the like differences or toxicity or anything because there's like all of this sort of pushback and sort of negation of transness. Shouldn't there just be this, you know, is it safe enough to be critical of trans, like, Mm, or just like be really real? Or do you have to kind of create this sort of facade in order to like prove like trans people are good? And so when I read his book, which is about this character who decides to, is like on a mission to like resegregate his school for various reasons so that it will be better. The character is black and it's about like this sort of vision. Yeah, this sort of hilarious and extreme sort of version of what happens when this character tries to resegregate his school so that it will be better. And so, yeah, this question of like, what if we don't need to create this sort of well-meaning facade? What if there's enough room to be messy (laughs) and like to show characters like at their worst as a way of like conveying their humanity, but without needing to create creating something without feeling the pressure to have anything to say to anyone who's trying to just like negate transness. Yeah. To really think about an audience as someone who is more, who you don't have to like explain things to. Like what if you imagine an audience who like gets it and you don't have to deal with explaining or justifying. You can just like. You don't have to be Penn telling everyone why. Exactly. (laughs) Which is his roommate. (laughs) If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Joss Lake, whose debut novel, Future Feeling, came out in 2021. You know, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about, um, I talked, my, my last interview before the pandemic was with, my last in-person interview before the pandemic was with Carmen Maria Machado about In the Dreamhouse, um, which, you know, amazing, everyone should read it. But one of the things that we talked about was this, this pressure in queer communities to always look your best and how that plays into and enables a lot of the abuse that you then see the intercommunity abuse that you see, including relationship abuse as she experienced. So I think there's also a way in which sort of allowing for that messiness is a, like it's aspirational to the type of safety that we want to see in the rest of the world. Right. So it's like when, when there's this pressure toward thinking that everyone has to at least present yourself in a positive way that like really I feel like intensifies everything that people are kind of like suppressing and hiding Mm -hmm. away so it's like it doesn't just because you want to sort of provide this facade it it doesn't mean that 
you're actually getting rid of anything. It's just kind of like becoming even more toxic wherever you're sort of like hiding it. So yeah, I, I definitely agree that, yeah, that there can be this pressure um, which I feel like Aiden also kind of embodies like in his oh, social totally, media yeah. persona to be like, here I am, like I'm hot, like I'm perfect, like here's like a brand that I'm promoting. So it's just like this, again, this sort of very image driven, flat, empty facade that feels like what you're supposed to be, like you're almost supposed to be like advertising yourself like on the internet. Yeah. And like if you're trans, you're supposed to be like showing like here's the real me and like now i'm like in the like perfect life because yeah. i've transitioned which is and just now like snap not... my fingers everything's perfect <laughs> yeah it's just like yeah it's just not real <laughs> that sort of plays into another thing you were talking about humor in that segment that you read and part of what i gravitated to in this book is that that humor is it like it edges toward absurdity right everything in this book sort of edges toward absurdity and i think that's a really effective type of humor to use in a in a book that is vaguely set in a in a future but really all of these elements are things i mean all of the non-technological elements are things that are in the present right all of these trends exist all of these feelings like you were saying are still here and there was another scene which really stood out to me, or I guess set of scenes, which is when Penn is trying to gain entry into the sauna at his gym. Right. Like he sees it as this performance of masculinity that the, he then has to buy his way into by providing some kind of spectacle of his masculinity or or of the way that he's playing with that. And it was so interesting to me to see something that like it's so heightened, I think, is what was so what was so fascinating to me that this is you can absolutely understand the feelings that would arise in a situation like that. But then they get made real in, in the actual dialogue that he's having with other people. Yeah, it was like wanting to kind of, in some way, like wanting to solidify his emotional experiences by creating circumstances that would justify them. So like mm -hmm. transitioning and then going into this, this head male space, there can be like all these anxieties. But often, if you're lucky, there's not nothing necessarily happens. It's just you're feeling all the feelings. These dudes don't care. There's always just like this quick bro nod and then it's over. But like the anxiety, the anxiety is still there. Even if, you know, the other people in the space have no clue that you're like micro analyzing all of their like body yeah. language. But so in the book, I think there's this way of like, let's just materialize all of these things and make them real so that Penn's emotions like have somewhere to go. Give him a real antagonist. Yeah, exactly. There is such an absurdity to certain elements like the bureaucracy of like getting a name change yeah. and all of these sort of things that obviously in a really realistic book, you would just kind of have the character like go and save it for the judge and get the paper and to raise the volume on the absurdity for emphasis. Yeah, it was fun. And it also just felt like a way of talking back to some of these experiences by pulling out and again, like materializing the forces that seem to be at play, even if in a sort of reality-based way, they're not visible. It, there's sort of a way in which it's like letting all the things that Penn imagines in some ways, even though there are instances where it's like, I want him to have a reality check. In another way, it's like some of what he might imagine is it's not coming of, from nowhere. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is sort of bleeding out and becoming more solidified in some of these exchanges. So I want to change tax just a little bit and come back. You mentioned in your sort of conceptualization of the rise, you mentioned mycelial networks. And in the second half of this novel, I'll just say, I don't think this is a huge spoiler, that the general location transitions from being sort of New York-based to being L.A.-based. But L.A. really, uh, in, in terms of like heightening the absurdity, right, it turns up the absurdity on the sort of the wellness culture, the spiritual culture, the like crystals and $20 Air One smoothies culture of Los Angeles. And I was kind of interested to learn more about the the sort of role that you saw that sort of wellness culture playing in Penn's growth, but also the ways in which it is sort of, I think, counterintuitive to his understanding or his expectations of like what he needs. Yeah. I mean, part of like the the journey to the other coast was just like to bring about just like a sense of, of things moving and kind of get him out of that apartment and into this I mean, as he is sort of pursuing more wholeness, like to to both put him in a space where, you know, there's this huge sort of industry around wellness and these sort of heightened expectations and like a whole other kind of facade around people proving that they're Mm -hmm. so well. But at the same time, it's like I also did want him to get like a little kind of boost of of wellness from being around it. So he like goes to a party and like has this ritual, like sexual encounter where he can kind of explore his gender and takes mushrooms, which a helpful narrative possibility is like, okay, your character is like very self-absorbed and like in their head, but like have them like (laughs) take a drug that's like known to like make you feel very interconnected. Yeah, there's this way in which like, yes, this like LA wellness, like psychedelic spiritual culture, there's like the absurdity element of it. And there's the way in which Penn in some respects is at a place where he's like willing to be like a little bit transformed by some of these practices. Yeah, it's also a joke that, like, people move from New York to L.A. and, like, suddenly they're just, like, happy. It's just, like, a thing. vitamin D does that to people. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it is playing with the expectations that, like, sure, just, like, move to L.A. and your life will be better. But then, like, his life kind of does get better. So, you know, a little bit of of all all the things. Okay, well, we're, we're coming near the end, so I have I have a couple other questions that I want to ask. First one is just that this book has been out now for almost two years, and I'm curious how your understanding of it has or hasn't changed as it's been out in the world and as it's been being read. Sometimes I feel like it it is very much like an artifact of like a very specific moment in time. I think I, I sometimes like wonder about some of the humor, and I wonder... Because it it felt so like of a moment, I sometimes like question some of the humor. I wonder like how the humor tracks in certain points. Um, I wonder about like Blythe's role and like if there are ways in which he could have been more centered. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's sort of endless things that I can still kind of critique. But I also feel sometimes I feel quite surprised that I gave myself the room to like say all of these things because it's it's sort of not within my I took on the the pen persona which is like not me or maybe it's like some like shadow 
some shadow of my personality, but it's definitely very sort of removed from like how I generally operate within the world. So I, yeah, I'm sometimes just kind of like, huh, like I, wow, I said that. Okay. But it, it also feels like having opened this door in terms of like, there's a way in which I feel like if you do set something down in writing around futurity, you kind of open the door to that futurity. So I do feel like there are these like strange ways in which my life has like grown and evolved because of things that I put into motion in fiction, mm-hmm. which has been, yeah, just like a kind of strange and mysterious thing to like witness. And last before we finish, what are you working on these days? Yeah, so I'm working on a fantasy trilogy. Oh, cool. Something I found that I had a lot of fun with in Future Feeling was like the, the like goblins and trolls like TV series that mm. just kind of it's not a, a huge element, but it's like a an imagined show. And it's not exactly just like <laughs> what I'm working on. It's not just queer goblins and trolls, but it's like a character who is sort of limited in <laughs> in his self-knowledge who seems to be in a time of like peace and prosperity and that's sort of the general narrative but gradually comes to basically like breaks this literal and metaphorical shell that's sort of the facade around his mm-hmm. life and starts realizing that one he has all these sort of magical powers that have been suppressed and two that the world that he lives in is much more dark and and disturbing and they're sort of at a very kind of critical moment in which things need to change and he has to kind of use these very newly accessed powers to kind of help with that and so it, i mean it's a lot of the same kind of themes as future feeling but a a different sort of genre and kind of orientation. Well, something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah. Joss Lake, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. You can learn more about Joss at his website, josslake.com, or on Instagram at joss.e.lake. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The story behind the story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. 